Well, good, good morning again. Good morning. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, you are a great and merciful Savior. Every day we are reminded of your loving kindness. We thank you that you do not give us what we deserve. You give us what we do not deserve, eternal life. We pray that we never take the sacrifice of Christ for granted. We pray for Christ's Reformed Baptist Church and all other faithful churches. We pray that you give strength to their elders and give them the courage to proclaim proclaim the truth of God's word without compromise. We pray that you will help their congregations grow in love for you and their desire to serve you more and more, regardless of the cost. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So what is the first thing you think about when you hear someone mention the book of Jonah? If you're like most people, you immediately think about Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. You likely think about the cartoonish pictures used in some Sunday school lessons where you see Jonah sitting in the mouth of a fish waving with a big smile on his face. But the book of Jonah is so much more than an interesting story about a man surviving for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. Jesse Johnson says of the book of Jonah, It is a testimony that God will go into the world and save whoever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants, through the preaching of his word. God's attributes are on full display in this book. Throughout it, we see remarkable things such as the sovereignty of God, miracles, and types of Christ. It is not just a story about a man and a fish. It is a story of God's faithfulness. It is a story of God's sovereignty. It is a story of God's mercy. I pray that you will see all those things the next time you read through the book of Jonah. And everything in this book was written by the man who experienced it. It is a first-hand account of what actually happened. But for some unknown reason, Jonah chose to refer to himself in the third person. But unfortunately, the book of Jonah has come under attack in recent years by liberal theologians who deny that Jonah ever existed. They claim that it's just a parable, and some go as far to say that it's just a fable like the boy who cried wolf. As Christians who believe in the Bible, we know it is not a parable. We know it is not a fable. We know it is real history. Jesus himself saw Jonah as being a real person and referred to him as being swallowed by a fish as a real event. He even calls it a sign in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41. It states, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered them and said, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. And yet no sign would be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. It would make no sense for Jesus to refer to the story of Jonah as a sign if it was nothing more than a parable or analogy. Eric Redmond rightly points out that 
Jesus could not have said as Jonah if Jonah was not. If he used a mythical Jonah in his analogy, his audience might have thought the prediction of his own death and resurrection would also be a myth rather than a fact of history. My friends, make no mistake about it. Jonah was a real man. He was really in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And he really preached in Nineveh. But before I go on, we need to answer a very important question and many, that many people ask. If we don't address it now, it may be in the back of our minds and distract us. What type of fish was it? Some people speculated, speculate that it was a sperm whale or a whale shark. They try to figure out what type of fish has a large enough stomach to hold a man. Then they try to figure out which one of those would have a low enough stomach acidity that Jonah could have survived in there for three days and three nights without being digested. But the Bible doesn't say what type of fish it was. It may have been a fish that's gone extinct. It may have been a fish that was created for this specific purpose. It may have been a fish that hasn't been discovered yet. So we do not know what type of fish it was. If God wanted us to know, he would have told us. Some people argue that the story of Jonah could not be true since there was little to no oxygen in the stomach of a fish. And without oxygen, Jonah could not have survived for three days and three nights. That may be true, but it is not, it is not a problem. We serve an, um, an almighty God that created the world in six literal 24-hour days. We serve a God that performs miracles. We serve a God that can take a man dead in sin and make him alive in Christ. We serve a God that could easily preserve Jonah's life supernaturally for three days and three nights in the belly of a fish. You may have noticed I keep saying that he was swallowed by a fish instead of a well. It's because the text says fish. At some point in history, the terminology changed. I don't know why, but I like to stick to what the text says. With all the background in mind, let's go to a text. Today we're going to focus on Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. However, we're going to read the entire first chapter to give us our immediate context. So Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amadi. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call upon your God. Maybe he'll take notice on us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? 
What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I will worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord, because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We're going to examine the first three verses this morning in four points. The prophet, the proclamation, the people, and the protest. These verses will also serve as a brief overview of the entire book. First, let's look at the prophet. Verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi. Jonah was a prophet to the northern tribes of Israel. According to Jewish tradition, he was the son of the widow who Elijah raised from the dead in 1 Kings 17. In Old Testament times, a prophet was someone who was called by God to be be his mouthpiece or spokesman. Often they would predict future events and warn people of what would happen if they do not turn from their sinful ways. Jonah, like other prophets, had a prophetic ministry that included both foretelling and forthtelling. Foretelling is when a prophet declares what is going to happen, and forthtelling is when a prophet proclaims the truth from God's word. Today, God no longer speaks through prophets like he did in the Old Testament. While God still uses his servants to proclaim his truth that have been previously revealed, he no longer uses them to predict future events. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 states, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Over the years, Jonah's earned himself several nicknames, such as the pouting prophet, the reluctant missionary, and the fleeing prophet. In this book, we see how he did everything humanly possible to run from God, but that was not always the case. When God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh, it was not the first time that he was on a mission trip to proclaim a warning from God. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 23 to 27 states, In the fifteenth year of Amazi, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amadi, the prophet, who was of Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would not blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. In this passage, we see how God used Jonah as a messenger and how God had mercy on sinful people. Later in the book of Jonah, God will use Jonah despite his reluctance and rebellion to call Nineveh to repentance. Once again, we see our loving God having mercy on sinful people. Aren't you glad that God can so use you to accomplish his plans, even when you fight against him and try to run in the other direction? And reading this book, we conclude that Jonah was an honest man. He was exceptionally candid about his flaws and his sinful behaviors when we recorded everything that happened to him. He did not try to clean it up, clean it up so he would look good or try to hide the details that would make him look bad. He was also very moody. Throughout the book, we see him display a wide variety of raw human emotions that we all experience. He experienced fear, bitterness, resentment. We even see himself throw himself a pity party towards the end of the book. However, we also see that he was willing to sacrifice himself to save other people. Once Jonah realized that he was endangering the men on the ship, he was willing to die in order to save them. Jonah chapter 1 verses 10 through 12 says, Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For, for the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. For I know on this account of me, this great storm has come upon you. Seeing how God can use an imperfect man like Jonah, who is sometimes a captive of his own emotions, provides a great deal of encouragement. It shows us that God can take broken people and do amazing things through them. Lastly, one of the most important things to know about Jonah is that he was an imperfect picture or type of Christ. A type is a real person, place, ceremony, or institution that foreshadows and points to something greater. But how was Jonah a type of Christ? We already saw in Matthew 12 that Jonah said, as Jonah, or I'm sorry, Jesus said, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But there's so much more. They were both from Galilee. They both preached a message of judgment and reconciliation. Jonah's eventual obedience in preaching led to the conversion of a great city. And Jesus' obedience led to the conversion of many cultures around the world. But the parallels do not stop there. We also see how the storm that Jonah experienced in chapter 1 is very similar to the story of Jesus calming the storm in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. It states, On that day when evening came, he said to them, 
Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with them, with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Then they became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? In these two accounts we see that both Jesus and Jonah were sleeping on a boat when they encountered a great storm. They were both awakened by panicked sailors. They both calmed the storm, Jonah by being thrown into the sea and by Jesus commanding it to cease. The sailors in both accounts feared the Lord after they were saved from the storm. And as you can see, Jonah was a type of Christ. But let's move on to our second point, the people. Verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria, was the capital of Assyria and was one of the largest Gentile cities in the ancient world. Since the Ninevites were not Jewish, they were seen as unclean and outside of God's covenant. They worshipped pagan gods and rejected the one true God. But that is not the only reason they were seen as the enemy of Israel and Judah. The Ninevites launched aggressive military campaigns and invaded cities to gain control over them. They were well known for their brutality and their extremely cruel treatment of prisoners of war. They prided themselves in the various ways they would torture and maim their prisoners. It has been reported that if a city was about to be taken over by the Ninevites, many of the citizens and soldiers would commit suicide instead of falling into their hands. I do not want to be graphic, but it's important to have a basic understanding of what they did so you can understand why Jonah felt the way he did about them. Prisoners would often have their ears, nose, and tongue cut off. But sadly, those were the lucky ones. Since the Ninevites did not have a large army to control the different cities they captured, they used fear and intimidation to keep people under control. The public torture of their captors was also a form of entertainment to the Ninevites. They would take prominent people in the city and publicly torture them in some of the most grotesque ways possible. They would then leave the bodies in public view to send a message of what would happen to you if you stood up to them. This tactic worked well, and the Ninevites were feared throughout the land. As fearsome as they were, they feared God more. We see in Jonah chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. Jonah began by going a day's journey to the city, proclaiming, Forty more days and Nineveh would be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God, a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is a proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let the people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. 
Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn his fierce anger so we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. When we look at people like the Ninevites, we should remind ourselves that we are not that different from they are. If it was not for God's hand of restraint, we could do the same terrible and evil things that they did. Prior to our salvation, there was nothing inherently different about us than the men who participated in all the genocides throughout history. The only difference is the restraining hand of God. When we read stories about sinful people like the Ninevites, it should remind us that we are also sinners that do not deserve the mercy that God has shown us. Just like the Ninevites, we deserve judgment, not grace. But God has shown us grace, just like he did the Ninevites. But whatever happened in Nineveh? History tells us God withheld his wrath for a time. The Ninevites eventually returned to their wicked ways, and God destroyed them approximately 150 years later. Now let's move on to our third point, the proclamation. Verses 1 and 2. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 1 begins by telling us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This phrase indicates the message was a direct revelation from God. It did not come from within himself or another man. It came directly from God. This is what the Apostle Peter refers to in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, which states, But know this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. According to S. Lewis Johnson, the message that was given by God to the prophet Jonah is not a benign, effeminate, wishy-washy message of divine love. It was a message of divine judgment. It was a warning for the Ninevites to repent or perish. God commanded Jonah to bring this very important message to Nineveh, one of Israel's enemies. Stephen Hamilton points out that Jonah was called to a people he did not like, to a place he did not want to go. But just like Jonah, you are called to serve God. There is no doubt about it. He is calling you to serve him. But that may look different for each person. The question is, Will you obey his call, or will you run from it like Jonah did? Will you live your life in obedience to him, or will you live your life in rebellion? God commanded Jonah to cry out against the city of Nineveh. He commissioned Jonah to go to Nineveh to sound the alarm that judgment was coming, unless they repent of their evil ways. In verse 2, God told Jonah that the wickedness of Nineveh has come up before him. God knew what they were doing, and none of their works were hidden from him. He knew each and every one of their wicked deeds. Proverbs 15, verse 3 reminds us that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching evil and the good. Even if they tried, the Ninevites would not have been able to hide their evil deeds from God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 states, 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. But if God knew what they were doing, why didn't he just wipe them out? The Apostle Paul answers this question for us in 2 Peter, I'm sorry, the Apostle Peter answers this question for us in 2 Peter 3.9. It states, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God was patient with the Ninevites. He gave them time to repent. He even sent them the prophet Jonah to give them a final warning. At that time, it was a mercy that was not shown to any other Gentile city in the Old Testament. But think for a minute about how patient God has been with you. Think back to the time before God saved you. Think about all the sins you committed and how God would have been justified to pour his wrath out on you for each and every one of them. But he was patient with you, just like he was with the Ninevites. What a blessing it is that we serve such a patient and merciful God. Now let's move on to our final point, the protest. Verse 3, But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which got to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah was a prophet from God and fully understood what God told him to do. He knew it was not a suggestion. He knew God was not asking him to go to Nineveh. He knew God was commanding him to go. But he gave in to his sinful heart and went AWOL. T. Desmond Alexander rightly notes that by fleeing the Lord's presence, Jonah announces empathetically his unwillingness to serve God. His action is nothing less than an open rebellion against God's sovereignty. Jonah wanted to get as far from the presence of the Lord as possible, so he tried to flee to Tarshish. At that time, it was the farthest settlement from Israel in the known world. It was in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh, and was a far more difficult journey. No matter how hard he tried, Jonah could not flee from the presence of God. No one can. Because one of God's divine attributes is his omnipresence. Omnipresence means that God is present in all places at all times. In other words, no one can hide from God because he is everywhere. This truth is taught throughout the scriptures. Psalm 139 verses 7 to 10 states, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay a hold of me. But this leads us to a very important question. Why did Jonah try to run from God and neglect his mission? He may have been worried that he would end up being yet another victim of the Ninevites. Imagine how afraid you would be if you were sent to North Korea as a missionary, knowing that the average life expectancy of a Christian there is a year and a half, and knowing that a majority of the time would be spent in a brutal concentration camp. And then imagine being told that you had to confront King King Jong-un and command him to repent of his deeds. Based upon the reputation of the Ninevites, Jonah would have had every right to be terrified to go to Nineveh. But surprisingly, 
That is not the reason that Jonah gave for his refusal to obey God. Jonah tells us exactly why he did not want to go to Nineveh in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But Jonah seemed, but to Jonah this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I told you, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish? I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah ran away because he understood that God was a merciful God. He understood that God was omnipotent and sovereign. He understood that God could save the Ninevites without his assistance. He understood that God would forgive the Ninevites if they cried out in repentance. But due to a sinful heart, he did not want God to have mercy on them. He wanted God to judge them. He was so upset that God saved the Ninevites that he wanted to die. As a reminder, in Jonah 4, verse 3, he says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Now that we evaluated this text, how can we apply it to our lives? The first three verses of the book of Jonah contain a great deal of background information that helps us understand the rest of the story. So we're going to look at four different ways that these three verses can help us. First, like Jonah, we are all commanded to proclaim the good news. Jesus Christ himself commissioned us to this task in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. It states, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ uses authority to commission the church to go to all the nations to make disciples. Notice that he did not command, he did not only command pastors or those with the gifts of evangelism to make disciples. He gave the command to everyone in the church. That means me, and that means you. Everyone is not called to go to a foreign nation like Jonah was, but we're all called to proclaim the gospel to a lost and dying world. But in order to proclaim the gospel, we have to make sure we know what it is. The word gospel means good news. But before we understand the good news of the gospel, we have to start with the bad news. The bad news is that we have all sinned against the holy God, We have broken each and every one of the Ten Commandments. We have not only sinned against God by our actions, but we have also sinned against Him by failing to do what He commanded us to do. We have even sinned against Him in our thoughts. Because we have sinned against a holy and just God, He will do what is right and punish us for our sins. He will send us to hell, where He will pour out His wrath on us for eternity. But God provided a way of escape by sending us His Son, who is both fully God and fully man, and he will save those who repent of the sins and believe in him alone for their salvation. While Jesus Christ was on the cross, the sins of those who repent and believe were placed on him, and he bore the wrath of God in their place. When Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, it was proof that God accepted his sacrifice in full. By having our sins removed is not enough to save us. We must also have a perfect record. 
We need to have the perfect righteousness that can only come from Jesus Christ. Just like our sins were placed on Jesus Christ when he died on a cross, his righteousness is placed on us. He earned the perfect righteousness by living a perfect life where he never sinned in thought or deed. He perfectly kept the first commandment by loving God with his full heart, mind, and soul every moment of every day. There was never even a millisecond where he was not totally devoted to God. He perfectly kept the second commandment by never giving himself over to idols or worshiping God in a way that he had not commanded. He perfectly kept the third commandment by never using God's name in vain and he never lived in a way that would defame the name of God. He perfectly kept the fourth commandment by always keeping the Sabbath day as God intended it to be. He perfectly kept the fifth commandment by always honoring his mother and father. He showed his parents the proper reverence at all times, even when he was a teenager. He perfectly kept the sixth commandment. He never committed murder, and there was never a moment where he experienced unrighteous anger. He perfectly kept the seventh commandment. He lived a life of purity in both thought and deed. He perfectly kept the eighth commandment. He never stole anything cheated anyone or scammed anyone. As a carpenter, he always used honest weights and measures. He perfectly kept the ninth commandment. He always told the truth. He never misrepresented himself or anyone else. He never even told a single white lie. He perfectly kept the tenth commandment. He never once coveted anyone else's property. He was content with the little that he had. And that is the good news of the gospel. But proclaiming the gospel is only part of the Great Commission. We're not called to make converts. We're called to make disciples. After a person makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, the church needs to come around them and teach them all that Jesus has commanded. The part that each of us play in the Great Commission will be different depending on where we are in life. For some of us, it might mean financially supporting missionaries. For some of us, it might be handing out tracts or open-air preaching. For some of us, it might mean inviting our family members and friends to evangelistic church services. For some of us, it might mean witnessing to our family members and friends. For some of us, it might mean teaching a Bible study or leading a prayer meeting. For some of us, it might be serving as a pastor or a biblical counselor. Each and one of those are equally important and play an essential role in fulfilling the Great Commission. Second, we should not be like Jonah and let our sinful feelings of bitterness and prejudice keep us from loving people and filling the Great Commission. We may not admit it, but there are certain people groups that we may look at as the enemy. We look at them as a problem that needs fixed instead of sinners who need to be saved. If we're honest with ourselves, we may actually desire that they receive God's wrath instead of his grace. And those people groups may be different for each of us. For example, for some of us, it might be Muslims. They worship a false god and are facing eternity in hell if they do not repent and believe in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. Instead of looking at them with a broken heart since they're not in Christ, we look at them as an enemy. We know that some of the most extreme persecution of Christians found in the world today are in Muslim-controlled countries. In fact, in many Muslim countries... The punishment of converting Christianity is death. We also may tend to look at them as terrorists. 
It may have been 20 years ago, but the attacks of 9-11 are still in the back of many of our heads. But, but if we look at Muslims in that way, we're not looking at them as Jesus looks at them. We're not looking at them as we should. We should look at Muslims as a mission filled and not a military target. Examine your heart today to see if there are any groups of people that when you think of them, you instantly have negative thoughts or become angry. It may not be Muslims for you. It might be African Americans. It might be Hispanics. It may be someone who is in the opposite end of the financial spectrum as you are. It may be some other group. It doesn't matter which group it is. Those thoughts are sinful and need to be repented of. Jesus has his sheep in every nation and tribe throughout the world. And we are called to reach them and bring them the light of the gospel. One of the most beautiful things is when people from different cultures raise their voices together and worship the God. It is an earthly example of the worship in heaven that we saw a little sneak peek in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10, that states, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one can count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Third, we should examine ourselves to see if Jonah, are we being disobedient and running from God? Jonah was personally commanded by God to go to Nineveh and to warn them of the impending doom, but he tried to run from God. Often, we are no better than he is. We have clear teachings of Jesus on every page of the Bible, but we often live like we don't. Dear friends, Know that if you're in Christ, your disobedience will not cause you to lose your salvation, but it will affect your fellowship with him. Examine yourself to see what areas of your life you're living in disobedience and repent of them. Jesus Christ already paid the penalty for those sins, and you have been forgiven for them. Through the Holy Spirit, you have the power to resist sin and live godly lives. Fourth, we can take comfort in God's omnipresence. As I mentioned earlier, Omnipresent means that God is everywhere at all times. While this truth should terrify the unbeliever, it should provide comfort to the believer. We can take comfort in knowing that we can approach God in prayer wherever we are. We do not need to go to a specific place at a specific time in order for God to hear our prayers. We, take, we can take comfort in knowing that God is with us when we're feeling lonely and abandoned by our family members and friends. When you feel like there's no one who cares about you, know that God is with you and that he loves you. We can take comfort in knowing that God is with us when we've been abused and the person who victimized us has not been held responsible like he should have. He may have escaped judgment in this life, but you can take comfort in knowing that God saw what happened and knows what he did. There will come a time when God will judge those who do evil and they may get away with it in this life, but they will not in the next. My friends, I hope you're starting to see that there's so much more to the book of Jonah than a story about a man and a fish. And that's only the first three verses. Let's close with a prayer from the book, Piercing Heaven. Blessed Jesus, you have done all this and more. You are the door into your fold and here below and your courts above. For you have said, 
that by you, whoever enters in will go in and find pasture. And you have opened a new and living way by your blood. You are the only possible way of access to the Father, and because you open it, no one can shut it. You live to keep the way you once opened still open by your continuing intercession. Heavenly Lord, the, the gate is never shut day nor night. In the preaching of your everlasting gospel, all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And as you graciously said, all that come to God by you will never be shut out. The word has gone out. You have blood and righteousness secure it. The Spirit sets a seal on it. You receive. You are blessed. You will cause all that the Father has given you to come. And you will keep the door always open for all comers. What a precious gift. Endless salvation. I pray that my fellow sinners still outside will rouse up from the carnal security and sloth before the master of the house gets up and shuts the door. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Amen.